Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This is the final episode of our series on Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce, titled, I Will Fight No More Forever, Bitter Surrender. For months following the theft of his homeland by the U.S. government, Chief Joseph has led his tribe of 900 Nez Perce on a nearly impossible exodus across some of the most difficult terrain imaginable in an effort to escape pursuing U.S. Army troops while fighting a brilliant rearguard action with the diminishing number of warriors he had remaining. After passing through and creating mayhem with all the tourists in Yellowstone Park, Chief Joseph and Chief Looking Glass turned to their last chance for survival, the Crow Tribe who would not only snub their offer, but join the army in an effort to capture the Nez Perce herd of horses, mostly Appaloosas, which the Crow much admired and valued. So much for brotherhood among Indians. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. After passing through Yellowstone National Park, the Nez Perce eluded the forces of Colonel Samuel D. Sturgis and followed the Clark's Fork of the Yellowstone River north out of Wyoming into Montana. General Howard, who had chased the Nez Perce unsuccessfully for three months, ordered Sturgis to continue the pursuit. Sturgis had 360 men in six cavalry companies, divided into two battalions, one commanded by Major Lewis Merrill and the second by Captain Frederick Benteen. Howard reinforced Sturgis's 360 men with 50 additional cavalrymen, two mountain howitzers, 25 white scouts, and a few Bannock and Crow scouts. Howard and his soldiers, whose horses were worn out, would rest and follow a couple of days behind Sturgis. The route of the Nez Perce had been predicated on the belief especially by Looking Glass, that they would find asylum and safety among their friends, the Crow, who lived near the Yellowstone River. Looking Glass met with representatives of both bands of the Crow on the Clark's Fork. The Crow, realizing that helping the Nez Perce would lead to retaliation on them by the U.S. Army, rejected the appeal of the Nez Perce for help. Moreover, a few Crow warriors would join the Army as scouts with an eye on capturing the large Nez Perce horse herd. At this point, the Nez Perce realized that their one hope for safety was to join the Sioux leader Sitting Bull in Canada, 250 miles to their north. 
In their journey down the Clark's Fork, the Nez Perce killed several prospectors and ranchers. The Yellowstone River, above and below the mouth of Clark's Fork, is bounded on the north bank by cliffs about 400 feet high. The one passage through the cliffs is Canyon Creek. Following that creek upstream through open country, about five miles from the Yellowstone, the cliffs close in on either side, and the creek splits into three forks, each running through a canyon only a few hundred feet wide with smaller side canyons. The canyons are separated by steep, flat-topped ridges three to five hundred feet high. The narrow canyons are about six miles long and lead to open prairie above. It was among these multiple canyons and the ridges surrounding them that the Battle of Canyon Creek would take place. The Nez Perce camped September 12th near the entrance to the narrow canyons of Canyon Creek. On the morning of September 13th, many of the warriors were raiding ranches for supplies and horses up and down the Yellowstone when they suddenly became aware that Sturgis was nearby. They had not expected him to catch up so quickly. Sturgis's men were exhausted and anticipated a rest after they crossed the Yellowstone on the morning of the 13th, but Crow scouts reported that the Nez Perce were moving up Canyon Creek six miles away, and seeing an opportunity, Sturgis sent Major Lewis Merrill and his battalion ahead, atop a long ridge, to head off the Nez Perce, traversing the shallow canyon below. Benteen's battalion followed, while Sturgis stationed himself with the rear guard. Merrill was halted on the ridge by a scattering of rifle shots from Nez Perce warriors. In the words of his civilian scout, Stanton G. Fisher, Merrill's battalion dismounted and deployed instead of charging, which they should have done. According to Yellow Wolf, a single Nez Perce, Tito Honod, held up the advance for a crucial 10 minutes, firing 40 well-aimed shots at the cavalry from behind a rock. The caution of the soldiers was perhaps due to the formidable reputation of the Nez Perce for military prowess and marksmanship. Gale force winds impacted marksmanship, a factor explaining low casualties on both sides. When Sturgis arrived at the battleground, he perceived that his troops still had the possibility of capturing the Nez Perce horse herd. He sent Captain Benteen and his men on a swing to the left to plug the exits from the canyon and trap the women, children, and horses. Merrill was told to advance into the canyon to threaten the rear of the Nez Perce column, but he was held up by an increasing number of Nez Perce warriors firing at long distance at his soldiers. He succeeded only in capturing a few horses. Benteen also ran into opposition and was unable to head off the horse herd, the Nez Perce occupying high ground and firing at the soldiers. A rear guard of the Nez Perce held off the soldiers until nightfall. Most of their horse herd and their women and children reached the plains and continued north. The scout, Fisher, among others, was disgusted with Sturgis's cautious management of the fight. Fisher was further disgusted when he returned to camp and found that the Crow scouts had stolen his pack animals, clothing, and bedding. The next day, Sturgis's men were joined by an additional large number of Crow, variously estimated at between 50 and 200, riding fresh horses. They were sent ahead with Bannock scouts and, in a skirmish, succeeded in stealing about 400 of the Nez Perce horses. Sturgis and the cavalry followed behind and journeyed 37 miles that day, but at the cost of wearing their horses down and putting themselves on foot. The Crow and Bannock declining to share their captured horses with the soldiers. After another long day of travel, but unable to catch up with the Nez Perce, Sturgis was forced to halt on the banks of the Muscle Shell River to await supplies and General Howard and his men, who arrived two days later. 
Without much difficulty, the Nez Perce held off and escaped from a cavalry force, outnumbering them at least two to one. However, the loss of about 400 horses to the Crow Scouts was a blow as it placed an additional burden on their remaining and increasingly worn out horses and slowed their flight toward Canada. They had also expended much of their scarce ammunition. The betrayal of them by the Crow was a psychological blow and after three months of a fighting retreat, they were physically exhausted. Sturgis's casualties in the long range battle were three killed and 11 wounded one of them mortally. Martha Jane Canary, better known as Calamity Jane, accompanied the wounded by boat down the Yellowstone River as a nurse. Sturgis claimed to have killed 16 Nez Perce, but Yellow Wolf said that the Nez Perce had only one warrior and two old men killed, and those by the Crow. He said that three Nez Perce were wounded by the soldiers. After General Howard learned that the Nez Perce had escaped again, he was not merely angry, he was nearly desperate. His repeated failure to corner the fugitives had earned him censure from his superiors. Now he played what was virtually his last card. He wrote a message to Colonel Nelson A. Miles at Fort Keough on the Tongue River, advising him to move all his available troops into the Nez Perce line of march northward. Miles, something of a glory seeker, but capable and energetic, was just the right man for a last-ditch effort. On September 18th, the day after he received Howard's note, the colonel departed with seven companies of infantry and a troop of cavalry. Meanwhile, the Nez Perce had broken out of the mountains and gorges onto rolling terrain that was easier to travel, but many of the people were wounded or sick, and they slowed the others. Because they were a burden, some of the old and the ailing began dropping out, wandering off to die alone. On September 17th, the bands forded the Muscle Shell River and pushed on north. They crossed the Missouri River eight days later, pausing on Cow Island to fight for and seize some food from an army depot there. Then they plodded north again. Cold winds were blowing now, reminding them that autumn had come. At the end of September, the bands made camp on Snake Creek near the Bear Paw Mountains. They had now traveled more than 1,600 miles to within 40 miles of the Canadian border, but it seemed that they were too weary to travel farther. The Council of Chiefs decided to stay there long enough to kill some buffalo, providing nourishing food and warm roads for the coming winter. It appeared to be a sound decision, for General Howard was several days behind them. However, the Chiefs did not know that Colonel Miles's troops were bearing down on them fast. At 6 a.m. on September 30th, Miles Cheyenne Scouts spotted the Bear Paw encampment, and his hard-riding command approached it concealed by a mountain spur. Joseph and his 12-year-old daughter Sarah were out across the creek catching horses to use that day when a cavalry unit swept around them to capture the herds. Joseph ran into the open shouting to some nearby warriors, Horses! Horses! Save the horses! Several Nez Perce jumped on ponies and fled north toward the Canadian border. Joseph put his daughter on horseback and sent her galloping after them. Then he raced through a line of soldiers back to the camp to help direct the defense. His wife was waiting at their teepee door. She said, Here's your gun. Fight. At 1 p.m., Miles ordered a second charge, and Joseph met it head on. When an infantry unit reached the teepees, Joseph's warriors killed three soldiers quickly and fought the rest through draws and gullies until nightfall. But by the end of day, Joseph knew the worst about the Indians' casualties. Among their dead was Tuhu Holse, 
the brave and cunning old chief. The crushing blow for Joseph was the loss of his beloved brother, Olicut, the good-natured giant. On October 1st, a two-day storm blew in, bringing cold rain, followed by swirling snow. An Indian woman later recalled, children cried with hunger and cold, old people suffering in silence, misery everywhere. Chief Joseph was tormented to see his people suffer so much, but he and Looking Glass had sent six of their trusted warriors to the Sioux in Canada, and Joseph still held out a hope that they would succeed in persuading Sitting Bull to come to their rescue. He did not know that all six Nez Perce had been killed by hostile Assiniboine Indians. Two hours later, Miles closed in with nearly 600 men. A wintry chill had begun to set in. When Miles ordered his troops to charge, a cavalry captain said, My God, have I got to go out and be killed in such cold weather? It proved to be a prophetic remark. The warriors, whom Miles soon would call the best marksmen of any Indians I've ever encountered, held their fire until the bluecoats reached a range of 100 yards. Then they opened up. Many a cavalryman was knocked from his saddle. In the first charge, one battalion had 53 casualties out of 115 men. The warriors carefully picked off all but one of the officers, including the captain who had complained about the weather. This withering fire was too much for the attackers to withstand. They stopped their charge and dived for cover in the gullies that crisscrossed the flats. Miles then threw a ring of troops around the whole camp, and the siege began. Intermittent fighting that first day continued with both sides testing each other without a decisive victory. At the close of the first day of the Bear Paw Battle, the Nez Perce still controlled their village. They dug shelter pits for the non-combatants in the coulees along Snake Creek, while the soldiers established positions completely surrounding the village. Under cover of darkness, the Nez Perce fortified their positions as best they could while the officers and soldiers planned and prepared for the following day. The army kept a strong vigilance to prevent the village from escaping into the dark. Soldiers who had been hit lay between the lines overnight suffering from the terrible cold. Some of the badly wounded died during the night. Those still alive heard quiet but resolute footsteps approaching, followed by looming shadows of warriors bending over them. Soldiers protected behind the lines imagined a horrible death for their wounded comrades. In his definitive history of the Nez Perce War, Nez Perce Summer, 1877, Jerome Green explains that the warriors, searching for weapons and ammunition, had no intention of harming the soldiers. Green relates a poignant story of one soldier who continually cried out for water to his comrades behind the lines. A warrior approached, took the soldier's ammunition belt, but left him a can of water. The Nez Perce War remained a different kind of Indian war right up until the end. The next morning, Miles's scouts approached the Nez Perce lines to negotiate a meeting. Not long afterwards, under a flag of truce, Yellow Bull approached from soldier lines and from there carried the first message from Miles to Joseph, asking to talk. These efforts were successful, and Joseph and Miles met. During this brief truce, both sides recovered, their wounded, and their dead. Colonel Miles, too, thought that Sitting Bull might intervene. To avoid a bigger battle, he began to negotiate with Joseph for the prompt surrender of his people. Joseph refused to agree to unconditional surrender, demanding assurances that the remaining Nez Perce would be returned to Idaho. 
The bloody stalemate and the watchful waiting ended on October 4th when General Howard reached the battlefield with the vanguard of his army. The Nez Perce leaders met to decide finally whether or not to give up. As they talked, Chief Looking Glass heard the sound of horses' hooves approaching, and thinking that it was the warriors returning with word from Sitting Bull, he went outside to make sure. He was killed instantly by a bullet in the forehead. Looking Glass was the last casualty in the terrible war. Joseph and Whitebird were the only chiefs left to decide the fate of the Nez Perce. In a council of warriors, Joseph, for the sake of his dying people, chose surrender. Whitebird promised to yield after supervising the roundup of his own band, but on the next day, October 5th, Joseph stood alone in avowing that the Nez Perce would resist no longer. Whitebird, instead of fulfilling his promise, had slipped through the guard lines and made his escape to Canada with 14 warriors and a number of women. There have been many accounts of the surrender of Chief Joseph, and perhaps the best is the account of Captain Charles Erskine Scott Wood, who was the right-hand aide of General Howard and the only man present with Howard through the entire campaign. In the movie, I Will Fight No More Forever, Captain Wood, who transcribed Chief Joseph's surrender speech, was played by Sam Elliott. Portions of Wood's account of the surrender follow here. Against the snow of Bear Paw Mountain, some 10 miles away, we saw what seemed to be a line of black ants crawling down the butte. They turned out to be some of Miles' Cheyenne scouts. While I was absent, one, or as I think two, scouts overtook us and said they were messengers from Miles to Sturgis, who had been sent to notify the latter that the Nez Perce had been encountered. Later I was told by other scouts that they had been sent to notify Howard also, and having missed him, had reported to Colonel Edwin Mason, next in command. On the 5th of October, the ground covered with a light fall of snow. The surrender was agreed on. About an hour or so before sunset, there came from the ravine below up to the knoll on which we were standing, a picturesque and pathetic little group. Joseph was the only one mounted, and he sat, his rifle across his knees, at each side of his horse, talking earnestly. Slowly they mounted to where we stood at the top. General Howard and Colonel Miles were grouped together, and a little retired, myself, Lieutenant Howard, Lieutenant Long, and further back an orderly and Arthur Chapman, the interpreter. Still further away, at some little distance, a courier stood at the head of his horse, holding loosely the bridle while the horse pawed the snowy ground. When the Indians reached the summit, those on foot stopped and went back a little, as if all was over. Then, nothing but silence. Joseph threw himself off his horse, draped his blanket about him, and carrying his rifle in the hollow of one arm, changed from the stooped attitude in which he had been listening, held himself very erect, and with a quiet pride, not exactly defiance, advanced toward General Howard and held out his rifle in token of submission. General Howard smiled at him, but waved him over to Colonel Miles, who was standing beside him. Joseph quickly made a slight turn and offered the rifle to Miles, who took it. Then Joseph stepped back a little, and Arthur Chapman stepped forward so as to be between Joseph and the group of two, Howard and Miles. I was standing very close to Howard with a pencil and a paper pad, which I always carried at such times, ready for any dictation that might be given. Joseph again addressed himself to General Howard, as was natural, for he had had several counsels with Howard, 
including the last one, which led to the war. He said, Tell General Howard I know his heart. What he told me before, I have it in my heart. I am tired of fighting. Two who will hold says dead. Looking glass is dead. He who led the young man in battle is dead. The chiefs are all dead. It is the young men now who say yes or no. My little daughter has run away upon the prairie. I do not know where to find her. Perhaps I shall find her too among the dead. It is cold and we have no fire, no blankets. Our little children are crying for food, but we have none to give. Hear me, my chiefs. From where the sun now stands, Joseph will fight no more forever. As Joseph finished, he drew his blanket over his head and turned to walk away to where his friends had remained standing, but I motioned to him to wait. Colonel Miles took a paper from Lieutenant Long and stepped aside with General Howard and showed it to him. General Howard read it attentively, then looked up and smiled and said, That is all right, Miles. Colonel Miles then walked away with Lieutenant Long, and General Howard, now assuming command, said to me, Mr. Wood, take Chief Joseph as prisoner of war into camp. See that he is well treated, not in any way annoyed, but carefully guarded against escape. I had Chapman translate this to Joseph, and I nodded pleasantly to the chief and tried to look, at least, as if it were all friendly. I beckoned him to come with me, and he promptly came forward, and we started to walk back. I noticed that Colonel Miles and Lieutenant Long, who had gone together to where the courier stood at the head of his horse, did not at once dispatch the message which had been shown to Howard, but that with the courier they were walking slowly back into camp. Presently I saw the courier galloping away. Colonel Miles returned and joined General Howard. They overtook me and Chief Joseph just as we reached the tent assigned to him. General Howard told Miles he had put me in charge of the prisoner and he would be glad if Miles would issue orders to have him carefully guarded. When I had seen Joseph into his tent and had said to him through Chapman that we wished to make him very comfortable and if there was anything he wanted or any one he wanted to see or any messages he wanted to send, he was to communicate his wishes to Chapman. I told him I myself would see him again. For General Howard and all the soldiers, I wished him good luck and hoped his troubles were over, and then left him. It will be observed that true to Indian custom, Joseph had not spoken for Whitebird. That night, this chief with his family and a few of his band escaped and finally joined Sitting Bull in Canada. General Howard maintained that in permitting this, Joseph had violated the terms of surrender and so the government was not bound to return the Indians to the Department of the Columbia. The war was over, but not the sorrow and suffering of the Nez Perce survivors. Half starved, their clothes in tatters, they were taken first to Fort Lincoln, Dakota Territory. En route, as they passed through Bismarck, a band saluted Joseph by playing the Star-Spangled Banner, and the townspeople turned out to cheer their bravery and give them food. Colonel Miles had planned to return the captives to the Lapwai Reservation, but General Sherman, his superior, was insistent that they be treated with severity and must never be allowed to return to Oregon. Late in the fall, the Nez Perce were put aboard a train under heavy guard and transported to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. During the winter, as the government deliberated on what to do with them, more than 20 Nez Perce succumbed to malaria. Joseph later said, 
we buried them in this strange land. The great spirit who rules above seemed to be looking some other way and did not see what was being done to my people. In May, the Nez Perce were moved to the Quapaw Tribes Reservation in Kansas. They stayed only a month before being relocated on another Kansas reservation, where 47 more Nez Perce died by October. In the hope of improving his people's lot, Joseph traveled to Washington, talked with lawmakers, and gave interviews to the press. He spoke without rancor, dwelling on the great principles that have always concerned moral men. We only ask an even chance to live as other men live. We ask that the same law shall work alike on all men. Let me be a free man, free to travel, free to stop, free to work, free to trade where I choose, free to choose my own teachers, free to follow the religion of my fathers, free to think and talk and act for myself. In June 1879, the captives were moved to Indian Territory. Among the Nez Perce who sickened and died, there was Joseph's little daughter, who had been born on the eve of their flight from Idaho. By 1883, the plight of the Nez Perce had become a national issue, and the next year Congress, bowing to the sympathetic public and press, authorized the Secretary of the Interior to dispose of Joseph's people as he saw fit. He saw fit to be lenient. On May 22, 1885, the surviving Nez Perce, 268 of the 700 who had fled, boarded a train for the Pacific Northwest. But even now, their woes were not over. Only 118 of them were permitted to rejoin their tribe on the Lapwai Reservation in Idaho. The other 150 were sent to the Colville Reservation in Washington Territory. One of those exiles was Chief Joseph whom certain officials considered too dangerous to trust with his own people. In 1901, Joseph told an interviewer, My home is in the Wallowa Valley, and I want to go back there to live. My father and mother are buried there. If the government would only give me a small piece of land for my people in the Wallowa Valley, with a teacher, that is all I would ask. The United States government did not oblige him, although he made the trip to Washington to ask this favor of President Theodore Roosevelt. The end came soon afterward. On September 21, 1904, while he sat by a fire in his teepee, he suddenly pitched forward on his face. The reservation doctor commented, Joseph died of a broken heart. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. To catch all our episodes, go to 1001storiespodcast.com and join us at Facebook at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back real soon.
Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>